another Gather and Gain Prophecy Times podcast. We're here for episode three, and we are going to be diving into Revelation chapter two. Hopefully, Lord willing, we'll get through the whole of chapter two. But I'm not going to, there's not going to be any introduction today. We're diving straight in because we've got a lot of ground to cover. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter two and prepare your hearts to hear from the Lord. Revelation 2. Now, just uh, to kick us off, what I want to say is this. Um, we are, we're starting the portion of Scripture that's speaking to the seven churches in Asia Minor, if you will. Uh, seven churches in A- Asia Minor. They are the letter to the church, if I can put it that way. The letters, of course, but the letter to the church. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But what I want to say is, and I want to start here, it's actually from a portion of scripture in Acts chapter 2. As we look at the churches in Revelation, uh, all seven of them, uh, none of them are a great example necessarily of what the church is supposed to be. The example that we have, the best example we have of the church is in Acts. And we find in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 to 47, let me read it to you. Then those who gladly received the word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. This is just after Pentecost, or on Pentecost. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that's in their teaching, and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles uh, by way of confirming the teaching, the message. Now all who believed were were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all all as anyone had need so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved so if I could pull four points out of what the church was doing in that time that should be our model for the church now and I think is helpful for us as a um, contrast into the letter that Jesus sends to the seven churches in Revelation. Four points that the church in Acts were strong on and, and did. They, number one is they focused on the teaching of the word. Verse 42, they focused on the teaching of the word. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. Focus on teaching of the word. Number two, there was a commitment to assembly and to fellowship. Did you notice that in verse 46? So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. So many times when I refer to Hebrews 10.25, people uh, will say to me, well, I gather with believers, um, you know, a couple of times a day. Just because I don't meet on Sunday doesn't mean uh, I'm not... Uh, you know, fulfilling that command of the Lord. And I would argue that you're not. That command is to gather with believers, yes, but for the purpose of worshipping and praising God solely, singing praise to Him, learning from His Word, and being together under uh, the teaching and doctrine of the apostles. 
and they did it daily in the temple. And we talk house churches, absolutely. Acts was, you know, it was house churches everywhere. They went from house to house breaking bread, but they also went to the temple daily. Uh, and so, you know, for those churches, uh, those local bodies of believers that gather in uh, bigger buildings or places, they were doing that daily as well as going house to house. So there was a commitment to being together daily, both in fellowship, but in praise and worship to the Lord and under the apostles' teaching, that is receiving teaching from the word. So that's number two, focus on teaching, commitment to the assembly and fellowship, breaking of the bread, number three. They were sharing meals from house to house. They were doing life together. They were living together. But it was also a sharing in communion, doing this in remembrance of what Christ had done. And fourth, a commitment to prayer. Again, we find that in verse 42. Focus on teaching of the word, a commitment to assembly and to fellowship daily. Breaking of the bread, sharing meals together and doing life together and a commitment to prayer. That is what the church should look like in these days. And so when we get to Revelation 2 and we start to look at the, uh, the letters to the churches, what I want us to understand is that there's, there's uh, a number of things that Jesus addresses here. First, on a personal level, in verse 7 of Revelation 2, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. It's a very personal application. He who has an ear. Who has an ear? Everyone has an ear. So this is personal. This is for you as an individual. But also it's for all churches across all time, as is the rest of the letters to the churches throughout the New Testament. The letter to the Ephesian church. That is the Ephesians. The letter to... The Colossian church, Colossians, to the Thessalonica church, Thessalonians. That applies to all churches across all the church age. And so does these seven letters to these seven churches. So it applies to all churches at all time. But also there were, there were in fact seven local churches that this applied to. Specifically at that time that this letter was given to. But in addition to all of these things. These seven churches gives us a picture from the time of the apostles to the time of the apostate church of the end times. One through seven, the seven stages that the, the church or, the, uh, or Christendom generally has gone through since the time of the apostles and will, will be in until now, the church of Laodicea in the time of the end days. And, and so we see the seven stages of Christendom across uh, the last 2,000 years as we look at these seven churches. And we'll get into that as we go through each of them. Um, and lastly, as we read each of the letters to the churches, uh, there's, there's a design element, if I can put it that way, to what Jesus presents to each of the churches. There's seven elements Seven churches, seven elements, seven, uh, you'll see the heptatic, heptatic, I think that's right, right? The, the seven structure all through Revelation. But in uh, these letters to the churches, we have the name of the church. There's a title for Christ that's chosen. There's a commendation to the church, a concern, 
an exhortation, a promise to the overcomer, and then he always closes with, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, the only exception to those seven things is that uh, there's two churches that have no concern, uh, which is the church of uh, Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia. There's no concern for those two churches. And there's no commendation uh, for two or three churches. And we'll get to those as well. But ultimately, each of the letters follows that, those seven elements. Name, title for Christ, commendation, concern, exhortation, a promise, and then a close. All right, let's go. Revelation 2.1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus writes, Now, stage in history, the church in Ephesus uh, as we look into it and as we look at church history reflects the church uh, state throughout the first century. Okay, throughout the first century. So the time uh, basically of uh, the life of the apostles up to about 100 AD. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, speaking of Jesus, that's his title. I know your works. Now, this is really important for us to understand. Every single uh, letter to the churches, Jesus says, I know your works. And we need to understand this as believers that he knows our works. We have no capacity to hide anything from him. We can't hide away our guilt like we do with the people around us. We can't hide from Jesus. He knows our works. He knows our motivations. He knows even our heart. He knows everything. I know your works. This is a commendation, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. This is a good start for the church of Ephesus. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. So these guys are testing uh, the spirits. They're testing the prophets, uh, the, the false Christ, the false, false prophets, and they've found them to be liars. How do we test? Acts 17, 11, we test against the word of God as we receive the scriptures. We test them against the scriptures daily and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So good so far. Nevertheless, uh, verse four. So there's always a but, unfortunately, except for a couple of the churches. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Interesting. You have left your first... He's, he's just talked about... They're laboring for the Lord. They have patience. They cannot bear those who are evil. They're doctrinally sound. Um, they've persevered through, uh, through all of these things for Jesus' namesake and have not become weary, but they have lost their first love. They've become doers of the word, but they have lost their deep love for their Lord and their love of being with their Lord, fellowship. They've lost that first love of fellowship with the Lord, of being with the Lord. 
Verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. I'm going to pause there. Remember where you have fallen. This church is backslidden. Okay, they've fallen away. They're still saved. They're still believers, but they've fallen away. They've, they've stopped fellowshipping with the Lord. But it refers to first works. What is that? It's talking about in the context of fellowship. Remember how you love to spend time in my word. Remember how you love to spend time with me in prayer. Remember how you love getting together with other Christians daily to worship me. Remember how you got excited for telling other people about Jesus. You've forgotten those things. You've busied yourself with all the, the cares of life, of the supporting the community, all the good things, but you've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten me. And he says, repent and do these things again, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What is its place? What is the lampstand's place? Its place is in the presence of the Lord. Jesus said he will not stay in a loveless church, a church that has lost their love for fellowship with God, spending time in the word and prayer and being together and uh, is dead to sharing the gospel to the world. It is that church who God will remove his presence from. The absence of the spirit will be known in that church. His presence will go as it did from the temple the Shinora, Shekinah, I don't know, one of those, glory of God in the temple. He removed it from the temple. Um, and that's what he says he will do if they don't repent. But this you have, it's an exhortation, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, this is the first time we hear about the Nicolaitans. We hear about them again in Pergamos. Um, these Nicolaitans, uh, a number of uh, um, scholars will, will go a couple of different ways on it, but the word Nicolaitan simply means this. Nikos is the first part of the word and it means priest or priesthood. And laos equals, uh, means lady or common people. And, and so this word literally means to conquer the laity to establish a spiritual hierarchy where a man comes between you and God. The concept of no, you can't go directly to God. You have to come through me in order to hear from God. Obviously, in, uh, in that day, in the first century church, this started to creep in doctrinally into uh, some of the people in, uh, that were either coming into the church or were already in the church. But in our day, because this is for all people all times, in our day we see this in the Catholic Church or any church really uh, that requires confession to a man, but particularly the Catholic Church, confession to a man rather than God. You see, the process is that you confess to a man and they will then deal with God and your remission of sins will be dealt with because you've confessed to me. Let me deal with God, you come to me. That's the Catholic Church. This is what the Nicolaitans were doing then. 
This is what the Catholic Church is doing now. But it's not only the Catholic Church. The Pentecostal Church do this also with the, a thing called shepherding. That is the concept of you come to us and we will advise you what God has to say to you concerning, insert here, concerning uh, who you should marry, what job you should do, what the Lord is telling you, etc., etc., etc. Needs to come through uh, certain people. And I mean, the New Apostolic Reformation is a classic example of that. It, it needs to come through the, uh, the uh, apostles or prophets uh, that have been set up within this movement. Bethel Church is a classic example of this. But did you notice what it said there in verse 6? Which I also hate. Jesus hates it because he came to abolish it. Jesus hates it when man sets up a system where he puts man between man and God, like these people are doing. Jesus hates it. It used to be that sin separated man from coming into God's presence. But Jesus' death for our sins tore the veil in the temple, which demonstrated a renewed access to God in Christ. Ephesus here, the letter to Ephesus, it speaks of the deeds of the Nicolaitans. In Pergamos, it speaks to the doctrine or the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And in Thyatira, it's the whole system. The whole system is now all of that. And in steps the Roman Catholic Church, and we'll talk more about that shortly. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will go as uh, so I will give to eat the tree, uh, eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. If we are in Christ, we will again eat from the tree of life and we will have eternal life. That's Ephesus. And uh, verse 8, and now to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now, this church is the second and third century church, and uh, it's known as the persecuted church, the church of Smyrna. These last things says the first and the last who was dead and who came to life. Who's, who's the first and last who was dead and came to life? This is Jesus' title here. Again, verse 9, I know your works tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now this is specifically talking about, and Jesus references these people in, in John 8, 44 and numerous other places. Um, this is specifically talking about the Jews, particularly the religious, but any Jew who is opposed to Jesus Christ. You are not a true Jew if you are opposed to Jesus Christ. But I believe it goes more, it goes further than this. I mean, that's the context of what it's spoken of there. But I believe this is a broader message as well. To those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, this has got me in trouble before, and I apologize in advance, and it is a little bit provocative. But who else are those who say they are Jews but are not? Those churches that teach 
a variation or a form of replacement theology are in fact doing the same thing. They are saying that the Jews are done and that the church is now the new Israel or the church of the true Jews or the church has replaced Israel in terms of the, being the recipient of all the promises that God gave to Israel and now the promises to the church. Those people are doing the same thing and that is claiming to be a Jew but are in fact not a Jew. Verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Now that reminds me of Matthew 10, 28. Matthew 10, 28 says this, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says here, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer in verse 10. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that, may be, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now we'll just pause there. Interesting. And you will have tribulation 10 days. Okay, so there's a few options for that and scholars take different angles on it. Uh, and it, it could well be that all of these are accurate. Uh, but the term 10 days here, a number of scholars will refer to that being a Hebrew idiom for a short period of time. I, I question that, um, but uh, I mean, there is some, uh, some precedent for that. Uh, if we turn to Genesis 24, Verse 55, I'll just turn there now. Genesis 24, verse 55 says this, But her brother and mother said, Let the young women stay with us a few days, meaning a short period of time, a few days, at least 10. After that, she may go. So it seems there in that context that at least 10 days or a few days is referencing the same thing and it's referencing a short period of time in that context. So there's certainly precedent for uh, the, the term 10 days here in Revelation to refer to uh, a short period of time uh, being a Hebrew idiom. The second kind of uh, possibility for what that is referring to is keeping in mind that this is the second and third century church. This is the second and third century church that experienced great persecution from Rome. Now, if you study Rome's persecutions throughout the second and third century, there are 10 specific periods of time through that time that there is intense persecution, after which there's a lull. And then there's intense persecution, 10 specific periods of time. Uh, I don't have time to go through them all now, but some claim that this 10 days is referring to those 10 periods of persecution for the church of Smyrna, which is referencing the second and third century church. Again, possibly. The third option is that it is 10 literal days. Now, the first two options, uh, you, can, you can argue those and certainly there uh, is a baseline for some of that, uh, but it's not an overwhelming evidence. And without overwhelming evidence, uh, we always need to come back to a literal interpretation. I don't know what 10 days were specifically. Maybe there was a, 
uh, specific incident where the church in Smyrna at that time literally had to go through uh, persecution of some kind for a 10-day period. Uh, I'm not sure. We don't know. Uh, we don't have reference to that uh, that I've been able to find. Uh, but regardless of whether I know why it is 10 or not, there are options for it meaning different things. Uh, but I would argue here that it's uh, simply a 10-day period of persecution or tribulation uh, for the people of that time. Verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Keep in mind here, it's what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, all of them. He, anyone, anyone who has an ear, what God says to the churches, please listen. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. I love that. Um, in the first letter, he who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. Speaking of eternal life and uh, our eternity with the Lord. And here, the overcomer is the one who is not hurt by the second death. Now, remember, I've said this before, that uh, if you are born twice, you only die once. Born by water, born again by the Spirit. If you're born twice, only experience one death or the rapture, maybe no death. Uh, but if you're only born once and you're not born again, you will experience the second death. This is referring to someone who has been born again. Verse 12, we're running out of time. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, right? Now this church in Pergamos comes uh, after the, uh, from the fourth century uh, onwards for a, a period of time. It's the state church under Constantine where there was a, uh, this was the church of the state. Everyone was under that church. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, which is the word of God cutting in judgment. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, where's Satan's throne is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He is the prince of this world. It's speaking of this world, um, but also we need to, so it could just be generally this world that it's speaking of, but we need to understand that Satan is not omniscient. He's, uh, um, he's based, he has locality, so he can't be everywhere at once. Uh, some scholars argue that this is specifically referring to the temple of Asclepius uh, in Pergamos. Now, this temple was a healing center to a pagan god who was represented by or as a serpent. So some argue that this is, uh, is what it's referring to being in the same region as this healing center that was in worship to a pagan god in, this, in essence, which was in worship to Satan. And that's where he dwelt. But either way, it's in the world. And you hold fast to my name. This is the encouragement. And did not deny my faith. Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Balaam is the one who, uh, he, was the, he was a Gentile prophet who was asked by Balak 
a king of one of Israel's enemies, to come and put a curse on Israel. Now, God uh, revealed himself to Balaam and told him not to come. Balaam on his way to, to do this uh, was the one that the donkey spoke to him. Time and again, God was like, dude, what are you, what are you doing? Um, anyway, in the end, Balaam didn't put a curse on Israel because uh, he said what the Lord said. And in the end, the Lord blessed Israel. Uh, but Balaam was uh, all, it's so interesting because he, he was a prophet and he was a prophet for hire. And, and this was the way of Balaam, which is spoken of in 2 Peter 2.15. He made a market for his gift. And in the end, God, God cast him aside uh, because of his error. And his error was that he was sacrificing eternal riches for temporal gain. And we find that in Jude 11. But this doctrine of Balaam that, it, that it's speaking of is talking about a marriage with the world. It's speaking about idolatry and sexual immorality. You see, after he was unable to curse Israel, if you fast forward to Numbers chapter 31, verse 15 to 16, we find what he did do. What he did advise uh, Balak, the king of Israel's enemies, to do, he advised them to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And what was that? To send in the Moabite women to intermarry. And through that process, sexual immorality, through that process, idol worship and worship of other gods, again, destruction from within. Time and again, that seems to be Satan's uh, way that he operates. So that was the doctrine of Balaam, idolatry and sexual immorality, a marriage with the ways of the world, so to speak. Uh, verse 15, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which, I, which thing I hate. So again, this is speaking about the, intro, or the, the beginning of the introduction of the priesthood. Uh, that separates man from God again, even though Christ had brought man and God together because of his sacrifice on the cross, because of his dealing for sin once and for all, we could again stand before the Lord. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, which is Jesus. Uh, we find that elsewhere in Scripture. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, this is a message to the overcomer, the born again believer who receives Christ, the hidden manna, and will receive a white stone and a new name. What's this white stone and new name? Now, in the time that this was written in the late 90s AD, the white stone was used in two ways. It was first used in the context of if you were tried of uh, something. So if you were tried in the court for something, when you were brought before judgment, if you were found guilty, you would receive a black stone. If you were found innocent, you would receive a white stone, meaning acquittal, innocent. And the second way in which this was used was in athletic games, and uh, that white stone would be given to the winner. Now the winner would then take that white stone and that would be used as its uh, invitation or entry uh, key, if you will, 
to the winner's banquet that was held after the games took place. You win the race, you've got the key to the banquet. You win the race of life through Christ, you have the key to the wedding banquet. This is all about the overcomer, all about the beautiful gifts and blessings that Jesus has for the believer. Verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, This in history moves past the state church period of Constantine and into the period of the Papus, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, don't feel bad, those Roman Catholics and Catholics among us. Yes, there's bad things that Jesus has to say, but he also has bad things to say about the Protestants next in Sardis, which we'll get to next week. But hear what Jesus has to say, because the way you're going is not of the Lord. These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Notice the like flame of fire, like fine brass. These are similes that Jesus used here as symbols of judgment. Judgment is coming upon this church. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. There are some good things that you do, especially in your works. However, or should I say, nevertheless, verse 20, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols idol worship. So this is the full-blown doctrine now being implemented of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans. This is now implemented within the Roman Catholic Church. And if you, uh, if you remember uh, Jezebel from uh, the Old Testament, Jezebel was uh, the queen, or should I say, the woman who became queen, uh, who married King Ahab, excuse me. And she was an evil woman. She was a seductress. She was all about wiping out all the prophets of the Lord uh, and introducing uh, idol worship and worship of other God. And if you look back at the history of the Roman Catholic Church, we see a lot of this, these characteristics coming through. Idol worship, sexual immorality, uh, all through. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Verse 22, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Notice what it says there, repent and you will escape great tribulation. Now, what we know the Bible teaches is that tribulations in this world are guaranteed for the believer. But this says that we will escape great tribulation if we repent. Could this be, and I believe it is, a hint of uh, the coming escape of the believer before the great tribulation. That is the pre-tribulation rapture of all believers. 
I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. Those among this church that hold to the doctrines of Jezebel, to the Nicolaitans, to Balaam, those among that church who have repented and come to faith in Christ, hold fast what you have till I come at the rapture of the church. And he who overcomes, this is speaking of the believer, and keeps my works until the end. What are my works? Let's go back to the first works. Time in the word, prayer, getting together with other believers, loving the Lord, loving others, excitement for telling others about Jesus. And keeps my, first, uh, my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. This is speaking about the future millennial kingdom he shall rule them with a rod of iron they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels as i also have received from my father and i will give him the morning star what is that it's christ he will give us christ in us revelation 22 16 2 peter 1 19 refers to the morning star being jesus christ Verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Guys, there is so much. We need to understand that this letter, these letters to the seven churches is for all people, all times. It is relevant to the church. Now, as we look around at the, uh, the local bodies of churches all around our nation, Australia, we see characteristics of Thyatira. We see characteristics of Pergamos, of Smyrna, of Ephesus, and we see believers and unbelievers in all of those bodies, the true church being the believers within the local body. We see these things going on. We see sexual immorality and idolatry. We see uh, those who rule over in the, the Catholic and the Pentecostal movements and, and other uh, other churches we see these things which God hates and God sees our works remember what he says over and over again I see your works he sees into the depths of our heart he knows who we are he knows where we're at he knows if we've been born again he knows if we're an overcomer be encouraged in the midst of uh, this, when you think about, we haven't got to it yet, but the church of Laodicea, that is the church that we're in now. That is the last apostate church before the rapture of the church. That's the church we're in now, the apostate church. God knows the context we're in. He sees our works. He knows our heart. Be encouraged for the believer the overcomer will eat from the tree of life. The overcomer will not see the second death. The overcomer 
will receive the white stone with our new name on it, entry into the kingdom. The overcomer will be one who rules and reigns with Christ in the millennial kingdom. These are the great promises for the believer in the midst of trials and tribulations. The promises that we will escape the great tribulation. The promises that if we run the race and hold fast to the teachings of Christ, if we are a born-again believer, then we are an overcomer. And these are the promises for you and for me in the not-too-distant future, in the soon imminent rapture of the church and all that will follow that in the life of the believer. Guys, thank you so much for being with us today as we tackle Revelation chapter 2. There's so much for us to cover. Revelation 3 next week. Please join us again next week, Wednesday, uh, 5 p.m. Much love and God bless.